Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We are Clay, Nick, and Doug. Hello. Greetings. Hello. And we are trying to become better Malifaux players. We're leveling up ourselves and hopefully leveling other people up as well. We do that by interviewing top third players from the Lone Star Conference playing in Malifaux tournaments across the U.S. And sometimes we pull in top third players from other uh North American faux tour regions who journey to ours. Uh, we are not trying to capture uh, these guests' entire tournament journey. Uh, we just want to take an in-depth look at a single game from each of them. What were the key decisions that they made before the game and during the game? And now that they're looking back at the game, what are the things that they learned that they can pass on to other people? Our basic format is to interview our guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament. Well, it's all fresh in their minds, and we can get some good cross-flow between them all. Rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Tonight, we're speaking with Maeve, John, and Andre. Hello. 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 Awesome. <laughs> These wonderful folks came in second, third, and first, respectfully. Respectively. Respectively. I am going to get this right. <laughs> June Malifaux Monthly Tournament, held in Houston on the 10th of June, 2023. To be fair to you, though, we also took the podium respectfully. We did. Yes, it was a very did. respectful tournament. Yes, it was. It was. We're going to be releasing these discussions with them as episodes 10A through C. So, hello. How are you doing today, Maeve? I'm pretty good, honestly. I'm still uh, kind of in shock that I managed to hit podium and I wasn't even in my own. Like, I never podium at home and I drove, I flew what, like, five hours, six hours away and podium there. So that that's a little, it's interesting. Well, it makes me excited. I, you know, I, I'm always excited when uh, players come to the tournaments from out of state, even more excited when we get to interview them for the podcast. It's just, you know, yay, new people. And some of my, you know, favorite people in Malifaux coming on the podcast. That's awesome. So something we like to do when uh, we have a guest on the podcast for the first time is we like to ask them, what is your gaming background and how did you get into Malifaux originally? Oh my gosh. Um, Let's see. I started playing MTG way back in like 94. Um, I think I played... I started like everybody back then did because it was the only game around playing um, 40K and um, Tyranid player from way, way back. Um, And then like the first time I ever got really like into a miniature game was weirdly enough Mage Knight. Um, I went like I, I played in like one of the only world's tournaments for Mage Knight, like the first couple years it was out. Um, and then it died completely. Um, and, uh, I played, I think when I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, I got into uh war machine and our local place had, uh, all kinds of like first edition Malifaux boxes right at the beginning of like when second edition was coming out and, uh, they were all on sale for like 10 bucks each. So 
I bought a ton of them and like everybody bought them, like our whole group bought them and then nobody but me played. <laughs> so past like six <laughs> months. Um, so like after that, I had to move um, to Raleigh, which is a couple hours away. And um, Don McCormick at that time, you know, who was a big, the one of the big Malifaux people back in the day, um, was putting stuff together. And so I've been playing with the the Raleigh crew, you know, that North Carolina met us since the beginning of second edition. So a long time. Cool. And so what factions and masters did you start out with? And, you know, what is kind of your main faction slash masters now? Throughout second edition, I pretty much stuck with, like I played a little bit of everything, but I pretty much stuck with Arcanists. Um, Ramus was one of my favorite um, masters throughout second edition. Oh, Ramos, and, rest in peace. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, gotta <clears throat> love the crime boss. Um, but then I ended up uh, at the end of at the end of second edition, beginning of third edition. My son had been playing Bayou, and he just you know he he's grown up going to college, all that kind of stuff. So um, he left all the stuff behind. And when third edition started doing playtesting, you know I remembered that like throughout all of second edition, Bayou just never got playtested you know, as hard as some of the other factions. So I was like, you know, I'll, I'll jump in on this. I'll play it. I loved the idea of zip, like one of my favorite. Um, and, uh, I found during third edition, I found Sommer who answered all of my like Ramos questions from the very beginning. Like he very much green and with guns, (laughs) except green and with guns, but he very much played that same kind of, summon ball style that um nicodem 2e played and you know ramus 2e played and that was that was it i played sommer i have probably played well over a hundred games with sommer in third edition like pretty much he was almost all i played at the beginning like but all the way through to gg1 uh rest in peace question mark (laughs) question mark (laughs) poor sommer okay well, something else we like to do, we like to do a little icebreaker question. Kind of, you know, get us warmed up and uh, going for today. So what is your favorite front of card ability in the game and why? Ooh, um, I can tell you what my least favorite is, but um, no, my absolute favorite front of card ability. I really like... Um, the monologue, what is it called, um, on the front of, uh, pirate. I think it's just called monologue. I think it is. Um, yes, monologue. I, I love it. Um, before I, when I, before I started playing him, I was like, not super sold on how good it would be. And then you just look at how many times like, oh, I just drew a one. All right. I'm going to pass Chuck this one. And now they got distracted. And you're eating people's focus or you're getting, you know, putting them on negatives when he's swinging into them. I love that ability. It's super flavorful and still fairly strong without being like something that you just, you know, that is like overtly strong. Yeah, it's it's a strong ability without being uh, objectively a negative play experience. Right. Like not being, you know, the the BS that's on the front of Damien 2's card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that guy's strong? I'm not. 
not sure I'm following. <laughs> I'm just happy Perdita too wasn't dropped in that conversation. Mm. You yeah. know what you did, yeah. Nick. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So since we talk about a single game from your tournament journey, which round of the tournament are you talking about today? All right. So I wanted to talk about um, round one because I think um, a it was a great game. Uh, my opponent was Ryan. Um, I do not remember what his last name is. Ryan Cruz, awesome dude, and what he's been on the show before too. So and and we had um, a cursed objects game, corner deployment, um, and you know I played Dreamer one. So I think that like there's a lot of people that would be like, oh god, a summoner. And Cursed Objects seems really, really bad. But I kind of learned, like, while playing that game, sort of, especially for Dreamer, not for necessarily any other summoner, but for Dreamer, I kind of learned how to play around the the Cursed Objects. And so that's why I kind of wanted to pick that matchup. Cool. And what were some, you know, big lessons and themes from the game? Um, One of the main themes was that... Um, Sometimes when you have um, pools that are like that, you can, if you are the one playing defensively, then you can pick where the battle happens. And if you're the one setting up the battlefield, you can get yourself control that the other person isn't expecting. He played Levy 2. He played a very elite crew with, with three riders and he wanted to come in hard. He wanted to take out Chompy Bits as soon as he possibly could. And I didn't move past my half of the board. Like, I barely got out of my deployment zone on purpose to sort of force him to come into me. The other thing that I did, um, because he was playing an elite crew and because he would activate, you know, those models very early because he didn't want them to take too much damage, um, or waste his fate tokens. What I did was every time, so I got a, I got a that wonderful double Alp summon on turn two, and I held them back until turn three. I didn't, I didn't drop them, even though I won willpower duels. I didn't drop them until turn three. I waited until after he had activated two of his riders. Then when they failed a willpower duel, or then when I activated Dreamer and they failed a willpower duel, I dropped them both beside those two riders after when they had the ability to to be able to interact and had them drop their markers off on already activated riders. So now his riders had two tokens on them each, and he has to waste an entire action to put a marker back on my Alps to kill them. And so I'm I'm eating away at the amount of activations that he the amount of actions that he has, and, and it was pretty effective uh, overall because he ended up getting, I don't think he got more than one point on cursed objects the whole game. He nice. killed a summoned stitch together. No, that's great. Could you? And I'm, I'd like to interrupt for some of our. Um, you know, bottom tier listeners, um, folks right. who may not be familiar, may have not faced summoners before, kind of how summoners work in, uh, could you just drill in a little bit on that? How summoners work, particularly within Cursed Objects, oh. uh, and then how are you able to exploit that with Dreamer in particular? So Cursed Objects, um, you know, at the beginning of the game, you pick five models, or you pick, you pick, you have five Cursed Tokens you can give over to models, you can give multiple 
curse tokens to models. Um, and when they die, they lose that token and you gain the point. If you summon a model, the model automatically comes in with a, uh, with a curse objects token on it. So you want to be really careful usually playing summons because they can give up points very easily, especially squishy summons like Alps. But you can interact any model can interact to give the token away. And it's very important to know, especially for, for new players, some, it, the summon rules specifically talk about uh, summon models interacting with markers. It doesn't say anything about the tokens. So summon models can give away their tokens. Um, so it's if you do play a summoner into that kind of list, uh, that kind of a pool, it's very important to like either have big tanky summons that aren't going to die easily or have that ability to get rid of those tokens as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Dreamer's unique in that manner that he's the only summoner that can keep a summon off the board long mm -hmm. enough to mm -hmm. be able to have them interact when they come back out, right? I think Terra can do that as well. Terra, maybe. Terra can, yeah. Yep, fair enough. And that's yep. why I wasn't as scared to play him because, like, I'll be honest with you, Dreamer 2 was probably, like, from an objective place, Dreamer 2 was probably the correct choice in that game. But I just can't play Dreamer 2. I don't know what it is. There's a mental disconnect. Same. I just, I just don't. I don't know what he's doing. So I didn't want to. And I didn't have a lot of time to practice. Um Life has been super crazy, and I haven't put in enough time playing, you know, before I showed up. So really, I had only played like two two games of Dreamer recently before I, I came to the tournament. So I didn't want to, like, try to stress my brain out. Plus, when he declared Levy, like, one of the things about Dreamer 2 is Dreamer 2 wants to keep models alive so that you can lose a dream and levy one is really 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 good at making sure none of your models exist so i you know i was trying to um i was trying to trying to, to figure out how to control that and keeping models buried models that are buried are models that levy can't erase yep uh, something else um to uh for new players to note as far as the cursed objects thing is that when a model is summoned, uh, the opposing player, they get to choose whether or not you put a curse token on them, mm -hmm. which 90% of the time you're like, yes, I want to put more tokens out there for me to score off of. But it's uh, important to know that, hey, maybe against Terra or the Dreamer, that might not be the best idea to give them tokens. Yeah. Or if you're, or if you're playing uh, Zip1, not a good idea. I've seen a game where Zip had eight tokens stacked on him at the end of the game. Because he can't get rid of them. He can't interact to get rid of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, I I hadn't had a lot of experience playing against uh, Levy 1 or Levy 2. But I also just looked at his crew, knew it was big and beefy, knew it was going to come for me. So I played pretty far back. He got into my dream or my uh, Chompy early but he didn't quite have enough to, to get rid of him. Um, I used all my, I, I used all my stones to keep Chompy and Dreamer alive on like turn two and three. But by the time turn three was over, I had gotten so much of an advantage that I didn't need the stones anymore. And he ended up killing Dreamer on turn four. 
which gave him a point of assassinate, which was fine um, because it also denied him a point of set the trap that he could, he could have easily gotten. So, or not set the trap in. Yeah. Set the trap. Well, I think that leads us into um, kind of what was the, what was the pools? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. We, we haven't discussed what are the pools so, yet other than cursed objects. You've got Vendetta, Assassinate, Hidden Martyrs, Catch and Release, Set the Trap. Okay. And what did you bring in your crew? And what did I bring in my crew? So my crew, I brought... Um, my pre- It's a pretty basic uh, Dreamer list for me. Um, Dreamer with Ancient Pact, Lord Chompy Bits with Inhuman Reflexes, Widow Weaver, Serena Bowman, A Daydream with Ancient Pact, Another Daydream without Ancient Pact, uh, Mysterious Emissary, and Insidious Madness. Mysterious Emissary is kind of the flex spot there. Um, it's 10 soul stones that you can trade in and out. You could put a um, a rider in there. You could put candy in there. All of those sort of things. Obviously, you don't want to put candy up against Levy because he can, or, or against those riders because they have Ruthless and can just eat through her manipulative. Um, but yeah, that's my, that was a pretty basic, like I said, it's a pretty basic dreamer list for me and it works pretty well it's got enough flexibility and summons um to to be be able to play just about anything um obviously dreamer's not the best into assassinate because he does get taken down pretty pretty often i don't think he usually survives till the end of the uh game but serene countenance is some pretty decent uh defensive tech because ruthless doesn't get around that it is but man i shove him straight up people's gullet I <laughs> I play him very aggressively because if you have um, two Alps in the pocket and, or a daydream in an Alp or whatever, then he's swinging at min three and he's really fairly tanky. So they're going to take a lot of resources getting rid of him. And as Andre is always fond of pointing out, um, having cards out of the game works so much better when Dreamer's dead. And Chompy is a pretty solid leader at that point. So if I lose Dreamer on turn three, I don't really care all that much because then all my good cards, all my bad cards are getting filtered way out of the deck. And by turn four and five, I'm swinging like it's pre-nerf Dreamer. Okay. Now, I see you only brought five stones in your uh, Mm -hmm. pool there. That's a lot of times in a summoner, you see people running with a pretty robust... Uh, Soulstone pool. I only planned on summoning turn one and two. I didn't expect him to live past turn three, so I only needed the five. Um, and then he ran um, Levy two, uh, two Hollow Waves, uh, the Dead Rider, Hooded Rider, Pale Rider, Hodgepodge Emissary, and a Prospector. And he only had one Soulstone, but the Prospector gets him back one every turn, so. And he doesn't really have a lot to spend on it. So it's a fairly chunky list, but he he really wanted to wait until turn three when everything when he had enough fate tokens for everything to really, really go off. Um, which gave me just enough time to kind of especially um at the end of turn two, the emissary put two of his riders in hazardous terrain. And yeah, I just kind of started slowing him down. Like there was just enough um, attrition on my part to to really start disrupting his plan. 
It's a super interesting, just like a tightrope of a game, though, too. It's like the fate tokens are going up on one side, and your deck's getting better and better and better on your side. And it's mm-hmm. like, how's this going to work out? <laughs> Obviously, yeah. it worked out in your favor, but... Well, dreamer, uh, that's why you use dreamers and outs. Um, you basically want to start like just chipping down as many of those fate tokens as possible during the turn. So that, you know, he doesn't have as many to use. Plus, Dreamer has Diversion Aura, so they can't use their bonus actions that they really, really want to if they're within four Dreamer. And if I'm playing him aggressively and shoving him into people's faces. Oh, yeah. That's right. I didn't even think about that. That's nasty against those riders. I haven't thought about that. They kind of count on those. That's their. That's yeah. kind of their thing. Kind of. And I had a moment because I had put Vendetta on the Emissary and Famine the hooded rider alt that he was playing. And and I had a moment where I was like, Oh God, I don't know how I'm going to score enough points on this because he started the, started the hooded rider out on one side and then ran it to the other side. And the emissary is not going to get there. And I'm like, okay, well I can get at least one point for just killing the the hooded rider and emissary stays. But then he ran the hooded rider all the way back to the emissary. And I was like, okay, that's that, that works. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> I definitely appreciated it. But yeah, I mean, it was it, it was a very good game, very tight game. Um, there were a couple moments like early on, he got a few pretty good hits with uh, the Dead Rider on turn two, or the beginning of turn two that could have killed Chompy and did not. So um, if he had killed Chompy on turn to our beginning of turn two, the game probably would have been a little different, but okay. And I see you chose catch on release. Which model did you pick for catch and release? The insidious madness. And he did exactly that. He ran up to levy, he hit him. And then the next turn he scattered and ran away because scatter is a absolutely insane ability. I love that ability so much. And I hate when my opponents have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And luckily it's only on like what? Three models. I know it's on Madness, and I know through hard uh, learning the hard lesson that uh, Mecha Meemaw has it. And Executioners have it, and I think that's oh. it. I think those are the only three people that have it. Executioners never use it because they're just murdering things. But Did we mention yeah. Guardians? Oh, do Guardians have it? Yeah, Guardians have oh, scattered too. Yeah. Yeah. So four models. Oh, Guild. And does Fuhatsu still have it, or oh, is yeah. that just old Fuhatsu PTSD? That, that's, that's old. That's, yeah. that's Henchman Fu, yeah. Yeah, and Ruffles has better scatter in Crazy Chicken. Just a little <laughs> shout out, for my bud uh, Ruffles. Oh, oh Ruffles. Ruffles, dude! But yeah, like Ryan was a fantastic opponent. Um, we had we had an absolute blast. Like we spent most of the game just chatting. I think um, he he did say that he hadn't ever really played Dreamer much before um, when we sat down. So I I do think that like not being familiar honestly out of all three games i think that really like gave me a little bit of an advantage all day was because my all three of my opponents really didn't have a lot of dreamer experience so uh you know they they were just kind of like what are you doing and i was like summoning these alps well what are they doing hold on (laughs) hiding in the void (laughs) right and then you know the alps would come down you know because alps are Alps are so good. If you have the ability to get the double Alps summon out, do it every time. Like I, that's a, that's not never a waste of red joker. Yeah, what card does it take to actually get the double Alp? It's the red red joker. Yeah, red joker the, for double Alp. Okay. Yeah. 
and I managed to land it. I managed to land it in all three games. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah, I can summon a lot more insidious madnesses when I play the dreamer. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Usually, usually it's. Um, I like to summon either like an Alp and a um, Daydream. That extra Daydream is a good one, or double Alps. Or if I need the Insidious Madness, the Insidious Madness out. Um, their Madness are really good. Is it just is it just the Lucid Dream that you're going for on the Alp and the ability to make your deck better and better and better, or is it just overall they're just solid models for five stones? No, good lord, Alps have made to kill. So when they popped in, they they automatically do a damage to anything they're engaged with, um, or anything they're base to base with. Which um, I've had them hit three models before, like plop in the middle and just pop one damage three models, and then they instantly get an attack off once they come into play. So you you basically interrupt dreamer damage or interrupt your dreamer turn or whatever turn to have them pop out, do one damage, take a swing. Then they get um, uh, they get a bonus to their attack based on how many other models are buried. So if you have multiple like outs buried, it's not always a good thing to like drop them both out at the same time. Like drop one, it gets a positive to its attack. It's only a stat five. It's only like a one three four, but it adds up. Um, they also have uh, I think they have latch on, so they can give slow out. Um, they have puncture. Plus, they have Natural Musk, and which gives all enemy models within two inches of them a uh, negative to damage flips, which makes them a target that your opponent almost has to take out first. So it's kind of like giving everything in the scrum an extra five hit points because they really want to take those Alps out before they deal with everything else. Um, so for five points, they do a lot. Yeah, I need to summon Alps more often. Why yes. have I been sleeping on these guys? I don't know. Heck? I don't know. But yeah, the um the extra daydream, so the Alp daydream summon, which is the normal one if you don't have the big card for it, is um you know the daydream pops out and gives you an extra lucid dream, which is you know always good and Plus, can suit friends around. Yep, yeah, and and send your friends around and is sometimes just wasting their time. Sometimes he's just there to to be annoying. One, it's insignificant. So if they kill it, oh no. Yeah. And your whole crew doesn't drop markers, which can really make uh, some crews very, very mad. Nephilim hungry. Yes. Yes. Yeah. uh, My my round (laughs) two opponent, Christian, which we'll hear about later, was struggling because he was playing uh, Seamus. And there were no corpses for Seamus to do anything with. And I was like, mm, sorry, huh, you can let your Not guys sorry. die and then we'll do corpses. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. So uh, during the game, what were some, you know, interesting lines of play and key decisions that you made and that your opponent made? Um. So one of the big ones was when he towed... I really think he just didn't quite like read the emissary card well, or didn't like know what the mysterious emissary was capable of. Cause he parked levy the dead rider and the um, pale rider real close to each other in a forest. Oh goodness. And the emissary within eight inches of the emissary. And so the emissary dropped like four 
markers and one activation, uh, four hazardous markers and one activation, pretty much on his whole crew, and staggered everybody. And uh, that was the after Levy had gone, which was gorgeous. I loved Ooh. that. So, so um, if you could uh, clarify why sitting uh, models in uh, severe terrain against the mysterious emissary is a bad idea. Uh, I'd love to hear that. I know why, but the <laughs> listeners at home. <laughs> because uh, our, our our dear friend Misty, who is one of those models that either has an absolutely amazing game or he does nothing the whole game. Um, he has an ability, which if you are in severe terrain, he you get a negative to duels against him. Um because it's a move duel, which a move duel would normally be kind of rough against riders because they they all move have seven, seven yeah. move. But when they're on a negative and you've got a decent hand, that's that's gorgeous. We love to see it. Plus, when he has a trigger that does blast and his damage track is two, three blast, three blast. So his blasts become hazardous severe terrain, which makes it kind of, you know, it just kind of like, uh, all builds up and gets you know gets worse and worse um, as you go on, and it not only blasts, it hands out staggered. So the next time you go to shoot them, it gets even harder to resist, and it's beautiful. I I do love the mysterious emissary. He's so, so good. Much. He's so good. He's so good. Or your opponent knows how to play around him, and he stands there all the whole time and does nothing. So. Oh yeah, I mean, and it's someone who plays a lot of Titania. And Barkus, um, mm-hmm. it feels hard just to not bring that mysterious emissary a lot of the time. I wish that we had access to give him fast more often. Yeah, I yeah. would like for him to be able to move and hit twice instead of most of the time he just moves and hits once, and then that feels sad. That's until they're you know, stuck. Andre's, Andre's that's you're going absolutely take. not. No, <laughs> no, that model does not need more AP. That's... Yes, it does. Yes, or it does. You, or no. you need other models to you know shuttle it about, shove it up. Yeah, the board. Yeah, um, but no, he's he was a great tech pick into this, and I did that for that exact reason. There was some decent um, terrain on the board that I knew he had to come through. Um, I got to pick the sides of the board, so I knew, you know, I knew I was picking the uh, battlefield, and I knew that he was going to have to come to me because his his that's what his list does is you know get to me. So I, I just kind of stacked the um, the battleground up to my standards, and then. Um, he did exactly what I needed him to do when he, you know, he, and I mean, he was towing into the severe terrain with that, uh, rider. And I was trying very hard not to like telegraph it in my face, like how excited I was. (laughs) Oh, and the the riders also got that really nice defensive, uh, resistance trigger, which, Mm -hmm. well, you can't declare resistance triggers if it's, you know, on a different, uh, resist stat. Yeah. Oh, and, um, I'm going to. Uh, mention this so uh, which board were you playing on it felt like you literally set up the terrain (laughs) i was playing on the dreamer board so i had the home field advantage all the little toys and and all that stuff it was wonderful um yes it was totally random the 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 to didn't specifically uh set you up to do that knowing that you were uh playing dreamer did didn't plan that out at all no Um, no 
the uh, for those for those who are listening to this and, and we're not able to actually see that board, it is a fantastic looking board. Uh, in the show notes, we actually have a link to Doug's tables, and you can see photos of that. But yeah, it looks like a play mat with little toys on it, and the place that Dreamer would be playing back in England, uh, thinking about kicking ass in Malifaux. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's, it's a great it's a great map. Um, all the boards were fantastic. I I absolutely loved. Um, I love seeing all the boards there um, in Texas this weekend. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I think other than that, um, another key moment was once again um, Ryan didn't like know exactly what the emissary did, so he ran the dead rider in, thinking he could um, use the mass trigger on his attack to pull the, the emissary into the rest of his crew. And the emissary of course has planted roots. So yeah, I was like, well, the, your guy can move. My guy's staying right, right where he want, where he wants to be. And, uh, that put the writer kind of stuck back away from everybody else and staggered and, and all of those things. So it didn't, uh, it didn't work very well for him there. And kind of got two of his big models because he's playing such an elite crew. You got two of his big models stuck in trying to attack <clears throat> a model that they just couldn't really take down um, without their bonus actions from because Dreamer was nearby, and without um, being able to you know spend time more time attacking and less time running. So, how much did having um, terrifying in your crews? end up uh affecting the game because i in our uh recent um uh the hand management episode we uh talked a lot about how terrifying ends up being a kind of a hand management strategy because it's helping you to have your opponent waste their hand how did that work out for you because you had a crew with a lot of terrifying in it and he had a crew with almost all ruthless. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. So so yeah, all of his riders are ruthless. Um, it it did work in my favor for Levy because he spent a lot of time trying to get big hits out because he was trying to reduce my important um, uh, my important activations as quickly as possible. So he was sort of throwing out a lot of heavy cards there. So when it came to Levy's turn, he was struggling to hit people. Um, that he should have been able to hit because he didn't have as many hands in his or cards in his hand. So on Levy, it did kind of make a difference, but he had three models. His three big beater models that were doing the work were ruthless, so um, they didn't really care about my terrifying as much as I wanted them to. Um, and it's kind of like that's one of the really cool things about Levy, as um, when you're looking in between like title and. Um, non-title is that there's such a huge amount of how do I build for this master parity because things that work against levy one and things you're worried about against levy one, you're not as worried about against levy two. You have a whole other suit of things to be worried about. Okay. So what, when you're going against levy two, what is there to worry about? Cause I know I have not run into Levy 2 on the board yet, and I haven't seen him on the table all that much yet. Well, Ruthless is definitely a thing. So, you know, if you're if you're relying on manipulative, like I said, 
I really like, like sometimes I'll take, instead of the emissary, I'll take candy and candy is just dead weight. Like candy is going to die very quickly to a rider um, because they have the fate tokens to spend for suits. Then they don't mind that. Plus like she can stun them, which is really good. They don't like to be stunned, but Levy also has the ability to remove stunned. So, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, but you really just with Levy, you really, it's really about the riders. The fact that he can be bring three very strong, um, three or four very strong models is big. And, um, you've got to be able to, to know that's coming and know how to deal because dealing with three riders is very different than dealing with Levy one and his, um, you know, his irreducible nastiness or, uh, Rusty Alice and her Min Three guns. So you know how yeah, instead you of Min Three them. guns, you're getting big old Min Three swords. Yeah, yeah. Which sometimes I'm more afraid of the big Min Three guns. Um, though, if you you if he hadn't taken emissary, he could have easily taken uh, Alice, and then he does ride with me three times with her, and she's in range to start shooting, which is not something you want to see. Um, but in general, you know, you stop with, with Levy 2, you stop worrying about all the irreducible damage and realize that you're just going to get pressed really hard um, very quickly. I do have a question, actually. How much did the HodgePodge Emissary play into the longevity of his crew? Did it really seem to help, or was it just kind of a lost cause? <sighs> he, so, unfortunately, he put the HodgePodge in a position where... Um, it got kind of stuck behind my hazardous terrain. So turn two, I think turn two, it really did. Like it kept me from killing the, um, the pale rider on turn two, which was something I really, really was looking forward to doing. And, and it did keep the, like, I don't think the pale rider died. The, the dead rider died. The hooded rider died. The, um, prospector died so i don't think he ever got um i wasn't ever able to get that uh that uh pale rider off so it did it did help in some ways and they do feel really strong with like the regeneration um upgrade and and that sort of thing does make a big difference mm. plus you just get the flex of having the fourth rider you know being a donkey rider as long <laughs> yeah. as, as well yeah, as the i was about to say yeah. Is the yeah. hodgepodge emissary an honorary rider because donkey? I Heck think yeah. I would have been more donkey. worried if he had brought um because because what he wanted to do is he wanted to kind of hold back a little bit. So I think it would have been more worrisome if he'd have spent those points on like ashes and dust and thrown ashes and dust into my crew that I had to deal with ashes and dust on turn two. And then on turn three, he sends in those super powered faded up riders, you know, to deal, to deal with all the rest of my stuff. Um, because the hooded, I mean, the, the hodgepodge didn't really like, I, I never went, Oh crap. He's got the hodgepodge. Got it. So you do not highly rate the fifth horseman of capitalism. Understood. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in other, in other times, uh, the hodgepodge has made me want to like, throw things at my opponent but not this game right i guess also it's appealing to have a uh, uh range eight uh, uh writer 
because of the extra one inch of movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it so, does definitely boost in them corner. up to be very fast. <clears throat> but, you know, Ryan had told me that his thing was to hold them back, you know, to not be super, like, he didn't want to supercharge me right off because he wanted to make sure he had his fate tokens. So that extra move is and isn't necessary. Yeah. Yeah. True that. So, um, Another uh, question that uh, applies to the, this game, but also a little bit to the uh, tournament overall. So uh, in Houston here, in, in the Texas meta, we are using clocks now for mm-hmm. uh, our events. Uh, prior to this, have you used chess clocks in any events? Uh, not in events. I've been using them with my um, normal play partner. Um, the, you know, I play like one or two people cause our meta is kind of like scattered at the moment and I've been using them pretty regularly just to kind of get used to them. Um, but I had never really played them in a tournament setting. Okay. And how, how did it feel playing them in a competitive setting for the first time? Um, anybody who's ever really played against me knows that I play very fast. Um, <laughs> yes, you do. I, I, I I I had to learn how to do it. I played Sommer for a hundred games. I had to learn how to play fast. So um, I, I tend to make pretty quick decisions and I didn't feel like the clock, I think only in one game out of the tournament that the clock really came into play that I started really sweating. And that was the second game because I had to slow down and think more to, to be able to score the points that I wanted to. Um, I I didn't feel very stressed about them. I think it was pretty organic. Um, there's a little. I felt like there's a little bit of place where, um, if your opponent isn't as new to it, doesn't know how to hit, you know, to hit the timers often. That like you have to have like a little bit of grace for people learning how to play it. But overall, I don't feel like it disrupted the game at all. Or I didn't feel like I was panicking because oh my god, there's time running down. Like it felt pretty. Pretty good to me overall. That's good. And uh, having played against you at Nova, I can attest that. Yeah, you do play fast. You were uh, running around with that brewmaster there. And I'm like, what's I was going say, I was going? playing brewmaster. John can tell you, trying to keep track of all that poison is nuts. Like, you got to be quick. Yeah. You've got to be like, okay, I did my thing. You go. I'm going to check everybody's poison. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, but it also helped that you killed half my Kurov, so then, you know, I didn't have to think as much then. <laughs> I did. I did. That was... You murdered Honestly, that game ruined you because of that big hill, and you couldn't oh, charge God, up the hill. hill. Yeah. Was it that yeah. stupid ice map hill? It was. It was oh. the ice stupid map. ice map hill. It was the ice map. And Brewmaster sat up there and went, I am king of this hill, and no one shall have it. And he uh, proved to... Be true to his word. Yes. But your Malasaurus Rex did get very, very drunk attacking my uh, my my golem, so. But it was fun, you know? It was a party, <laughs> man! It was a party. It was a party. Uh, no, that was a good game. But yeah, I, I am a very, I am in general a pretty fast player. Um, I, I don't, I try not to second guess myself. I try to like save my time in the game for moments when I really have to stop and go, okay, how am I going to score these points? Um, I hadn't, I, I said I hadn't played dreamer very often, like recently, but I played dreamer a good bit earlier and I really like to, um, 
sort of like practice that round one a whole lot, the unpack and everything so that like, I want my turn one to try to be over within like 10 to 15 minutes of starting the game. Like you, you want to get into the meat of the game quickly. You don't want to spend your first 15 minutes going your first, you know, your first round of the game where nothing is really happening going, uh, what do I do here? What do I do here? How do I move it here? I want to make sure that everything is kind of going like clockwork so that when we get into the major, like the meat of the game, I have time to stop and go, okay, this is where I can think and um, change plans if I need. Okay. So this round, who would you say is was your MVP model of the game and why? Emissary. Emissary, yeah, he was the he was the the appropriate tech piece for that that game. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounded like you know that. Oh, my toes in a uh, forest, and screw your day. And once he realized that it was a problem, he threw two riders at the emissary, and like it tanked just long enough to be able to let everything else get through, and he didn't even kill it. So that's just sad. Yeah, it was. It was rough. It was real rough. (laughs) Well, and you had Serena Bowman there. I'm assuming she was... uh, Uh, She was on the other side of the board. Oh, so she wasn't healing him. Yeah, no, she wasn't healing him. It was just he didn't get enough attacks through. And uh, then the next thing you know, there were double Alps in his face and Dreamer was in his face and Chompy was in his face. And that was it. So he survived just long enough for the rein- for the uh, reinforcements to yeah. ride in and right. take down the cavalry. But he was at like, I think at the end of the game, he was at like three health left. So. Nice. So now we're going to shift to kind of the after the game recap here. Um, something we like to talk about is, you know, we break it up into, you know, a bottom third player, a middle third player, a top third player. What is some advice you would give to a bottom third player facing uh, your crew for the first time and, you know, really looking at learning um, what to do there? Like maybe they've never seen the dreamer on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. What are some uh, major gotcha mechanics that uh, your crew might have that they aren't expecting. I mean, obviously the uh, emissary and the negative flips on that, that attack there was definitely kind of one of those gotcha things, but stuff like that. Um, I think sometimes it is like, if you see dreamer being thrown up the table, he is a distraction. He's trying to make sure that Chompy lives through most of the game. Um, So it's not, Unlike a lot of crews where like going after the master hard is what you really, really want to do. It's okay to let dreamer live a little while and take out like chompy is your number one. Um, Widow Weaver is usually scoring me a lot of points. So she's another one to look to take out. Like, you know, um, figuring out what your target priority is, is really, really big. Dreamer doesn't always score me points. Other models are scoring me points. So if try to find those models. If I have an Insidious Madness on the table from the beginning of the game, that is there for a specific purpose. He's not, you know, and and so killing him early is usually a good idea. Um, the other thing is to remember that, like, Daydreams are very easy, fairly easy to kill. Like, they're only three wounds with in- Incorporeal. But a lot of the time you have one with Ancient Pact, which is giving me... Um, 
you know, helping me get back uh, going first advantage, you know, and, and from this. So getting rid of that one that has H of Pact is really a big deal. Um, it's also the only real good source of card draw that I've got. So killing that is is a solid plan. Um, so really it's, and, and, and like I would say with every, every single player, and I try, you know, in a tournament setting, it's a little different, but like, if you ask me questions about my crew, I'm going to tell you honestly what's going on. So do not be afraid to right before the game, be like, Hey, I've never played against this thing before. I don't know what it does. Can you give me like a breakdown? Because what you don't want is for them to suddenly go, Oh yeah, I've got two outs in here, three outs sitting in the pocket. You just failed a willpower duel. Blam, blam, blam models dead. Um, which can absolutely happen. Yeah, it could be uh, suddenly the, oh, there's nothing on the table, and now, behold, my friends are here. Yeah. All right. I wanted, I wanted to ahead. ask one, and you talked a bunch of target priority kind of stuff there. Where does Serena fall on that list? You know, it's like killing the cleric is great, but she's got a demise effect, and it's like... If uh-oh. you need her to be dead. So, for instance, in my second game I played against Christian, he had In Your Face, and um, Serena was one of his only good targets, and it took him two turns, full turns, to kill her, but he got her dead. She, If you focus her down, she's very... she's, And they give you a chance to get to her, you definitely want to try to take her out, but it's going to cost you some resources because she does have that demise. So, you know, if you're going to go after her, I think you need to put all the effort into going after her. There's no reason to plinker to, to try to like push at her or whatever. Like you, you've got to put full seriousness into it because the next turn, she's just going to be back up to full health and laughing at you. So now, um, what advice would you give to a middle third player? You know, someone who's got some experience under their belt has maybe matched up against the dreamer a couple of times and is uh, looking to improve their game and start, you know, climbing that podium a little bit more. Um, playing against dreamer, put yeah. pressure, put pressure on the hand. Dreamer doesn't do much if he doesn't have a hand and he doesn't have a lot of ways to replenish his hand. Now that's not the same for dreamer too. Dreamer 2 plays a little differently, but I can't really um, talk about Dreamer too much because, once again, brain does not compute. Um, <laughs> to but... be fair, I I look at Dreamer 2 and go, how does... What... This... No. It's, it's on the list. By the time I get back to Houston, I will have, a, I will have an answer for you. <laughs> but... Um, no, definitely putting like if you are trying, if you know you've got a decent dreamer player in your um in your meta, which you should. Neverborn players should be playing more dreamer. He's really I love him a lot. Um, hand pressure. If you can force him to use his good cards against like saving Serena or saving Chompy or doing any of the things he needs to do, he has less cards. His crew in general has less cards to deal with. One of um. Neverborn just does not have a lot of like really, really good ways to draw cards in general. They have a few masters that can kind of do it, but um, yeah, putting that pressure on the hand so that you're having to rely off the top of the deck is, um, and you want to do it quickly 
because you want to pressure that deck early and you want to pressure their hand early in the turns because on turn four and five, they could have seven to eight weak cards out of their deck and they're flipping a lot hotter. Um, that's the other thing that I think is a mid-level thing is like, especially late in the game, don't think, you know, if you're wanting to cheat to keep, if you need something alive and Dreamer's attacking it or one of Chompy's attacking it and you go, okay, well, I have a card that will stop this attack, but I could also just like put them on a negative instead. Don't go for that negative if the moderate can kill you because that deck's flipping hot and you're going to see moderate weak flips constantly. And if that red joker's in the in the deck, you know, that's it's going to come up faster. You know, a lot of times red joker will show up in turn four and five, red joker will show up twice in a turn pretty easily for Dreamer. And uh, you don't want, you know, to suddenly just get spiked because you could have saved your model and you didn't. So, um, you know, if you're going to chunk a card at a model to keep it safe, just make sure you win the duel. Don't, you know, don't throw an eight out when a 12 would have kept your model alive. If you if you desperately need that model alive. Um, that happened a couple times this weekend where somebody was like, I don't understand how you keep, I think Ryan said it. He's like, I don't understand how you keep flipping moderates. And I was like, there's eight, (laughs) nine cards out of my deck. That's the point of this entire thing. Well, it really does. I mean, uh, you know, reasonably experienced players kind of started to know how to judge the heat of their deck. Mm -hmm. Well, the dreamer, if they've got that lucid uh, dream engine going, it kind of throws off that calculus. It does. It does. Unless you're really paying attention to what they're doing there. The, I know when I've played against it, the mental math didn't quite click over on me. Right. Their deck is getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. Right. Well, and even though you have to drop half your cards back, those cards are still in your discard pile. Yeah. So that top of that turn can still be pretty hot. Even when, you know, you don't think it's going, you know, you're looking at it going, oh, they've only got five, six cards out of their deck. Well, yeah, but they did. That means they put six weeks in their discard pile. So there's still 12 cards out of their deck starting that turn. Now, here's a question that that kind of leads to for me here is on those later turns where you're dumping, you know, a bunch of those cards into the discard pile and you personally know you've got a hot deck. Do you tend to front load your big important actions on those turns? Um, no, I mean, that's hard to say because, you know, this is the what's the, the Malifaux mantra. It depends. Um, it, it really depends on what my, you know, what those big turns need. Um, I in a dreamer crew. A lot of times I like to rely on actions that don't need flips to do to get me the points. Um, So I'm looking at, you know, sending something off to score, you know, to drop markers or, um, you know, activating uh, madness, scattering, dropping a marker, those kind of things. So I'm always sort of looking for like, where do I need to go with the least amount of variability in the game um, that I'm playing? because you know, that's it. You can front load everything, but in general, I'm sort of relying on that. Like, how am I going to churn this deck? How am I going to make it work? Um, because there's a fine line because the minute you 
reset the deck all those half of those you know all those cards that you dumped out are now back in your deck again so you kind of have to play that like top of turn middle turn sort of you know vibe with it uh, you're excited to get the red joker back in the deck but you also get you know all your sevens eights and nines in as well all right now what advice would you have for a top third player um like what do you wish you had done differently in this game and what big lessons did you take away from playing in this game um, I think the big, the big lessons I learned is, is really like, I hadn't seriously thought about how good it was to hold those models back for cursed objects until later, um, in the game. It was really, cause like turn one, I think I summoned an insidious madness and I dropped it out almost immediately and it nearly died. And I was like, okay, this is, that was stupid. So then I, you know, I, I kind of thought about it. And when I got the red joker to be able to red joker get two Alps, I was like, okay, now now I don't need to drop them. Now I can hold them back. Um, I think the important thing is, you know, it's like I was saying earlier, when you're that top level player is, which I definitely don't consider myself a top level player, um, but is to um, know where the fight is going to be learn how to judge like where on the map the fight is going to be and sort of preset everything to be in its most effective spot. Like turn one, you don't turn one. You can kind of fiddle around a little bit, but turn two, everything needs to be where it's going to be because it's going to have a hard time getting away from that spot. Once it's there, like you don't want to waste actions on turn two going, oops, I should have been here, but now I'm here and now I have to fix that. Um, so, you know, the, with with this pool in general, um, it's cursed objects. So there's nothing. The only thing that dictates where the action is going to be is where the models are. Um, you know, it's different when you're covert or you're guard the stash because you know that action is going to be centered around those specific um you know, ideals and you or those specific places. And you have um, in this one, you had um, Vendetta and Assassinate. Once again, all of that's going to happen where the models are. Hidden Martyrs going to happen where the models are. Catch the release, set the trap. Everything about that is where the models are. And when you're playing against a crew that has like a bunch of fast, beady models that are going to try to alpha you off the board you know where he's coming. He's coming wherever you are. So set him up to be wherever you want him to be. And I think in the same, like if you're playing against that, so if you're playing against a dreamer crew that doesn't have any problem with you kind of pushing into them because they've got incorporeal and terrifying to sort of hold them back. Like your job is to, how do I scalpel out the important model that I want to kill? You know, I want to take out, widow weaver i want to take out dreamer um how much effort how much am i going to put into taking out this model where it is and can i get to it um so once again it's a lot of that like playing your turn one over and over and over again until you know what you're going to be doing you know you've got that idea of like oh this on this turn, I'm going to move up. I'm going to focus on all these guys. So all these guys are eight inches up the board because I have the hodgepodge emissary. Well, you know, I know that on turn the next turn, I can ride with me five inches and then I've got an eight inch charge. 
plus, you know, whatever. So I know kind of like what my ranges are. I know how far I have to get. Based on your experience in all the other metas, uh, how did Texas fare? Um, I dodged the big boys. I, I see Andre ready, ready, ready. I dodged. I mean, I dodged a lot of the big boys. I didn't get to play against Andre. I didn't get to play against Brian. I didn't get to play against John. Uh, I didn't get to play against you, Nick. Um, everybody was awesome. That's, that's the, anybody who's seen, who's listened to my podcast knows that like, I'm in this for the people. I love the people and everybody I played, I played Ryan. I played Christian. I played Elijah. All great guys had a blast um, hanging out. It was super cool to walk into the building and everybody's like, you know, everybody that I know was like, Oh my God, it's so good to see you. And then everybody that I didn't know was like, Hey, you know, who is this? And you know, they were very, very chill, very cool. Um, so as far as being welcoming, it was fantastic. Of course, being a trans girl in Texas, a little nervous, right? You don't know how things are going to play out, but, um, the Malifaux community as always continues to be an amazing place. Like it's, it's, it's so unique um, that I have never really had like many bad experiences just dealing with people, even before transition, just dealing with people in the Malifaux community. Everybody's been awesome. So I, I loved it. Um, I got three very competitive games, which is what I was expecting. Um, it was it was great. Like I definitely uh I definitely appreciated being able to come out and do the thing and somehow walk away with second. I took a nice little I took a nice little fail upward on round two, only losing by one point. <laughs> and you dodged Andre from marining to victory. Yeah, dodged <laughs> Andre like, you know, intentionally. All part of the plan. <laughs> Yeah, you keep your diff low enough, and then you just submarine right into second. Right. You're like, all right, well, I cool. lost by one on turn one, or one by one on turn one. I lost by one on turn two, and then um, on round three, I won by six. So that game um, kind of got away from Eli a little bit, um, and yeah, so I had like that last round. Let me just propel right upwards to the top. I was like, okay. <laughs> we will take it. Congratulations. We are so glad you came out, man. Thank you so much. For sure. It's awesome to meet you and play again. Yeah. See ya. So uh, I do have a very important question for you. Since you were uh, borrowing my dreamer, since you didn't want to fly with uh, models, which you know what? Flying with models is a pain in the ass. So totally understand that. Now, I really got to make sure that, you know, did the be- dreamer behave well for you since you were babysitting him for the night? Uh, I mean, did he eat his vegetables, go to bed on time? He didn't seem to play very well with others, but but he uh, he did he did behave well for me. And Doug gave me the you know he asked me he's like I've got two decks I've got a great deck and I've got a curse deck which one do you want? And I was like I'm gonna try the curse deck let's do it. And that curse deck really worked out well for me. Granted, it's probably much better when you shuffled out most of the the weak cards out of it like <laughs> well i think that just uh goes to prove more evidence that uh weird specifically cursed that deck against me mm. i i just think it's more evidence that that, that deck is in fact cursed <laughs> double alps in each game is a pretty a pretty good indicator yeah. that it, it is only cursed for you doug so we're glad you were able to put that deck to good use, Maeve, for sure. 
So uh, before we uh, take off, do you have any um, anything to plug or any parts uh, parting thoughts for us? Oh boy, do I? Because I am terminally on the internet. Um, <laughs> so Malifaux things. I have uh, my uh, Bio Breakdown podcast. Um, we will be coming back very very soon. I got a couple episodes. I'm just editing up, ready to go. Um, I apologize for not getting into those. It's just it's been crazy. Um, I'm on Boring Conversation with Jesse, um, where we talk about other Malifaux stuff. So, Bio Breakdown is about interviewing players and getting you know just the talking about how awesome the community is. Boring Conversation, we do other you know we talk about like you know play stuff and and that sort of thing. Um, and then I also have a actual play RPG podcast called Foxtail Games where we play different role-playing games and uh, we just finished up our first season. We did a horror role-playing game called Curse of the House of Rookwood. It's really fantastic. Um, we have a couple of uh, Malfo players um, on that one, including uh, one of your uh, gracious hosts, Nick, was on the first season. Um, the Nick Westbrook was on there? The Nick Westbrook. So oh, it was so much fun. Maeve is such a great GM. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to it, you're not really Nick's friend is what I'm understanding here. Dang. That's um, right. That's the <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah. But that's out but, there on the internet now. It's official. It's out there on the internet. But yeah, we had um we had uh the the incredible Jim Dyson was on there. Anybody who knows Gentleman Jim uh is a fantastic guy. And then we had uh, you know, our own um Maryland Salt Block Nathan was on there as well. So anybody that that knows Nathan as you know he's a he's a big guild man he is the guild stan at this point um i've never seen anyone as absolutely dedicated to a single faction <laughs> um but it was a lot it's a lot of fun we're doing our second season now um if you like rpg games come check it out if you like malifo stuff check out the other stuff um um i've been on pretty much everybody else's podcast too so I'm around. And now you've been on ours. Yeah, and now I've been on this one. So that's the real reason I came to Texas was clearly I needed another podcast under my belt. Exactly. <laughs> and we'll have links uh we'll have links to those podcasts in the uh show notes so everyone can go find them and listen to them and prove that uh you are uh Nick and Maeve's friend. Absolutely. That's right. That's how I judge my friends is in their friendship towards me. It's listens and likes yeah and patreon clearly. contributions clearly it's those patreon <laughs> and in dollars. my case how good you hug <laughs> i'm a i'm a good hugger i'm not gonna Nick, lie yeah. you really are man. You that. Yeah. a solid hugger yeah I'm so proud of that i'm blushing and the, the <laughs> audience can't even see it well mave thank you so much for coming on the show it was a blast to have you come out to houston i was so excited when you uh, reached out a couple months back and said, hey, I'm coming to Houston. And it was even better than I uh, anticipated. It was, you know, great to have you here and wonderful to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. 
Prudence of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malfo terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! doing here besides just joking around and giving some outtake stuff getting derailed by doug not a problem i started it so i'm gonna stop talking and hand this over to nick thank you how about you hand it over to doug god damn it what is my problem tonight okay so that was like maybe the worst i've ever done this little intro but that's okay and so we do this just to like give me outtakes so thanks doug <laughs> I, I love the outtakes they're my favorite part Patreon stuff. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we got to have a Patreon first. Boop.